sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan being charged under an anti-terror law. Also going to be discussing a curb fest for political prisoners happening in Baltimore for Black August. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. I want to make fun of Donald Trump's lawyers suing the government for the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, but there's just too much irony involved for this to be funny. Trump's attorneys are suing to keep the FBI officials from inspecting certain materials seized without third-party oversight, they say. They're demanding that a court should appoint a special master, and this is usually a retired lawyer or a judge, uh, to review these documents because the FBI potentially seized privileged materials in its search, and the Department of Justice, uh, the lawsuit contends, should not itself decide what it can use in its own investigation. Now, Trump's attorneys filed a lawsuit saying that the FBI and the DOJ shouldn't be allowed to oversee themselves in an investigation. And I just don't know what to say in this bizarre moment when I can't believe I'm agreeing with that, even if this lawsuit goes nowhere. Of course, the question of what materials were seized and what is meant by privileged are at issue, and I'm guessing that the government will probably respond by saying that the materials were privileged government documents, not private Trump documents. But then that, of course, raises the issue of the validity of the government taking your private documents in the first place, like the FBI did in the raid on the African People's Socialist Party's properties just a few weeks ago. If you recall, in that raid on July 29th, the FBI and local police agents in St. Petersburg, Florida, and St. Louis, Missouri, broke down doors, broke windows, used flashbang devices and drones at the properties of the APSP and threatened residents of the organization with automatic weapons. The FBI stole computers, hard drives, phones, office equipment, and files, both business and personal. But of course, because they say, the FBI, that they were carrying out a warrant, the FBI will say that they confiscated those personal materials. They didn't steal them. They also temporarily detained, meaning they handcuffed, APSP Chairman Omali Yeshitela, his wife, and Deputy Chair Ona Zene Yeshitela, and other members of the organization, all under the guise of alleged Russian influence. Having any connection to someone from another country is not a crime. Last time I checked, I don't think, in this country. But the members of the APSP were certainly treated like they were criminals and like they committed heinous crimes. By contrast, even though it seems that Trump did take documents from the White House to his private residence in Mar-a-Lago, and some of those documents may have been privileged and classified and maybe even pertain to nuclear information, but honestly, who can trust the U.S. government about any of that? But still, it does seem that Trump at the very least violated government protocols regarding the handling of official documents Nobody at Trump's Florida property was handcuffed. None of his property was damaged. No windows broken. No flashbangs used. No drones or threats with automatic weapons. 
The FBI and local police were quite polite and circumspect in carrying out their raid on Trump's property. And I'm certainly not saying that they should have done the things at Trump's property that they did at the APSP property over some documents removed from the White House or for any reason. Honestly, I'm just noting how the media is all breathless and bothered over Trump's lawsuit against the FBI over their raid at his property, but not one word about the violation of the rights and the destruction of property of Omali Yeshatela and his people. In the lawsuit, the search of Mar-a-Lago is called, quote, a shockingly aggressive move, adding, quote, law enforcement is a shield that protects Americans. It cannot be used as a weapon for political purposes, end quote, directly from the lawsuit. But it sure wasn't as shockingly aggressive as the violent FBI raid on the properties of an African socialist organization. And law enforcement, particularly the, the FBI, They've always been used against Americans for political purposes in this country. Work backward in history from the APSP raid to COINTELPRO to the Parma raids to infiltration of labor organizations, all in an effort to destroy leftist movements, communist and socialist organizations and organizers for the purpose of destroying unionization efforts, anti-war organizing, black, Chicano, Native American liberation movements, and to generally crush any movement that challenges the hegemony of capitalist exploitation in this country. Every presidential administration has used the Department of Justice and the FBI against people's organizations in this country to suppress liberation efforts. So those agencies exist to carry out the political agenda of this government, and that is to uphold the capitalist hegemony in this country and enforce adherence to it. Trump pointing out the obvious political nature of the FBI raid on his property isn't untrue, even if the reasons he's making the same point we've been making is from a position that's ideologically opposite of ours. Because let's not forget that this is the same guy who was fine with federal law enforcement brutally expelling protesters from Lafayette Square Park so he could take a stroll across the park and take a picture with an upside-down Bible in front of St. John's Church. He would turn the FBI and every other federal agency loose on us again much faster than he would ever defund it as his acolytes are now disingenuously demanding be done to the FBI now that they've raided their Fuhrer's property. Trump is certainly no ally to those of us who have dedicated our lives and certainly not to those who have lost their lives and their freedom fighting against this system. But in this case... Trump's not wrong about the FBI. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by journalist Wakas Ahmed. Wakas, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. 
Absolutely. And Wakas, a former Pakistani prime minister, Imran Khan, has been charged under the Anti-Terror Act following a speech that he gave uh, during a rally that took place in Islamabad just this past weekend. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what happened here. I mean, what was the content of um, Khan's speech that uh, uh, for him to be charged under this? And, you know, just what is the context of all this happening inside Pakistan? It all started four or five months ago in April when Imam Khan's government was removed from power by a no-confidence vote in the parliament. Imam Khan believes, and he has said since then, that uh, uh, the people behind his ouster are the American government and the Pakistani military. And this has been going on for a long time. And the, the, the the primary players in Pakistan, the PDM, the civilian government, and the Pakistani military have been trying to shut down Imran Khan, like clamp down on Imran Khan since he was ousted because he has been holding these massive public rallies. So as things have been going on for months now, things continue to get heated, which has have now culminated into these terrorism charges against Imran Khan. Uh, why terrorism charges? Because uh, terrorism charges are unbailable. So if he's arrested, he cannot be bailed and he will be held. That is why they've, uh, they've put these false charges. So the speech that he gave was basically about his aide, uh, Shabazz Gill. Is, uh, he's also a University of Illinois professor. He was the chief of staff of Imran Khan while he was in power and uh, even after he was ousted. And he gave a statement that military officers should not obey illegal orders. For that, he was arrested by the Islam police and he was allegedly tortured. According to him, he was tortured. So Imran Khan, in his speech, was saying that people who have tortured uh, Shabazz Gil, we will try them, we will sue them. This is what has been widely reported in the speech. His exact uh, statement was that we will file cases against them. For this speech, they have put trumped up terrorism charges against Imran Khan. Yeah, and the charges in particular uh, stem from the Pakistan Electronic Media Regulatory Authority, or PIMRA, um, saying that Khan's speeches were uh, basically oppositional uh, to maintaining law and order. Um, So, you know, what is the legal basis, I suppose, that the government has been using to file uh, these charges of terrorism against uh, Imran Khan? These are very flimsy grounds so far, because all of these statements that Imran Khan has now been accused of all the political opposition that are now currently in government, they have said the exact same things when they were in the opposition. These things are mostly related to Pakistani military establishment, or even Imran Khan has not yet directly accused the Pakistani military establishment. He only said them in, in, in encoded language, using you know, publicly, but using you know terms that are uh, more subtle. Like he calls them neutral. So, but. Still, as the heat goes up, there are institutions and the military institutions in Pakistan that think themselves above any criticism. So anything said about them, they will not tolerate it at all. Even if it is like illegal speech 
for the rest of the world. For example, in America, you can say a lot of these things and nothing will happen. But in Pakistan, the tolerance for free speech is very limited. So they can make these thumbs up charges and locally it could be justified, even though this, like this whole thing internationally would not be considered justifi- justifiable. We might laugh at terrorism charges against Imam Khan for saying something that is not a big deal at all anywhere else. Yeah, and of course, this comes as uh, Pakistan currently under uh, Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif. And one thing that has uh, struck me, uh, Wakas, in the time since uh, Imran Khan's government was removed is that it still seems to have a kind of mass base of support inside Pakistan, as evidenced by these uh, massive rallies uh, that we've been talking about. And so how is it that a seemingly popular government was able to be uh, uh, removed in that way, uh, even when it seems that uh, uh, there's a good number of people inside the country that would prefer for Khan to be in power? The biggest power broker in Pakistan, realistically, is Pakistani military. And if Pakistani military wants you out, the whole country can be on your side. And this is what we're saying it's played uh, out right now. Uh, in the late 70s, Pakistani military hanged an immensely powerful Prime Minister Gultikar Ali Bhutto, and uh, the sky did not fall. Pakistani public have, uh, throughout history, have not been really uh, interested in bloody revolutions or any mass-scale mobilization. So this, I believe, is what Pakistani military is counting on, that beyond a certain uh, red line, the mass protest will not escalate, which I feel could be short-sighted in this specific case because what has happened in Pakistan and what Imam Khan really stands for is, uh, and how he has mobilized such a mass base is not a coincidence. Pakistan, for the past at least 20, 30 years, since Jawlak has been ruled by two parties, the PPP and the PMLN, and both of them, uh, are from the elite. They're not from the Pakistani public. They are from the feudal classes, the ones that have traditionally have held no large tracts of land and uh, 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 held powerful positions in the Pakistani economy. So these people have been stealing from the Pakistani people for so long and corruption cases against them are known to public for so long, yet because of the power they wield and because of their closeness and because of the games that they play with the Pakistani military, they have been able to hold on to power artificially for such a long time. And Imran Khan, even though he has so many imperfections, he is from one of the people. He had mass popular support before he became a politician as a cricketer. He utilized that powerful public support to build a hospital, to become a philanthropist, and he built upon that. For 20 years, he struggled as a philanthropist and a politician, and he he mobilized the grassroots. Now, the Pakistani, this Pakistani military and Pakistani uh, the the Pakistani government currently that is a coalition of all the feudal parties, that the PML and the PPP, they have all formed a coalition against Imran Khan, who has broken the two-party system to create a three-party system, back to two-party system again. Anyway, so this is where Imran Khan derives his support from and what they're up against. And they think 
that they can stifle this and they can file these cases against them. They can harass journalists. All the pro-Imran Khan journalists are now being harassed. Jamil Farooqi, a journalist, was arrested yesterday. Uh, videos of him crying at the airport while he was being transported on a plane in handcuffs was viral in Pakistan. Before that, uh, cases have been filed against top anchors in Pakistan. Arshad Sharif, he's uh, the top anchor in Pakistan who exposed the uh, corruption cases against the current Prime Minister Shehbaz Sharif. He is out of Pakistan because uh, he would be arrested if he was there. Imran Riyaz Khan is another journalist who has been arrested and he has been in jail for weeks. And there's always allegations of torture when all these uh, journalists and these activists are uh, under custody with Pakistani officials. Yeah, and Wakas, in situations like this, what we're seeing inside Pakistan, it uh, always makes me wonder if there's any sort of outside influence that uh, has some interest in uh, uh, sort of trying to manipulate the politics within that country to some extent. And I'm thinking specifically of the West and uh, the United States. And so are there sort of outside influences or forces that are having some impact inside Pakistan or do you see it as chiefly an internal issue unfolding there? No, there definitely always is. Pakistan is a big country and it's, it's an important country. And there is always an outside influence and extreme interest, especially given you know Pakistan's geopolitical status and the, the weapons that it has, nuclear weapons. Uh, because of that, there is always outside interest and influence. And in current case, uh, since... The four months he's been out, the Imran Khan has been saying that there was some American influence in getting his government removed. Now, we are. he says that there is a diplomatic cable which he presents as proof, but that cable has been, the Pakistani military has uh, not allowed that cable to be uh, uh, declassified. But we know for a fact that like, there are many evidences that uh, show us that Pakistani military has been involved in the removal of Imran Khan. And we also know that American government has not said anything about that, which is a very curious thing, because wherever any military of a country is involved in something undemocratic and tries to remove that, and depending on what the American government's position is, usually there is a statement from the American government denouncing that act. Whenever there is no such denouncement, for example, in case of Fiji in Egypt or uh, in case of Pakistan, uh, if there is no denouncement, that means there is some approval. And that approval must be must have been discussed at some level, right? And the diplomatic cable that Imam Khan says is a proof of that could be actually be a proof of that. But like, for example, we did see in Myanmar when the military took over, there were widespread denouncements of it. And it, right now, the state of human rights in Pakistan, there have been no denouncements of it. And we have seen there is military involvement in the state of human rights in Pakistan right now. Yeah, and Imran Khan is also facing court charges uh, for uh, contempt that uh, it seems that he will have to appear in court uh, next week to face these charges. What what do these uh, charges have to do, these court charges have to do with this wider effort to eliminate Khan from politics in uh, the country? This is all a part of it. They're trying to circle him. They're, they're trying to legally 
remove all of his options that he have, and they they're going to corner him. What they really plan is uh, the other main uh, 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 politician in Pakistan, Nawaz Sharif, who is in uh, self-imposed exile in London right now because of corruption charges and conviction that he had against him. He has already been disqualified from politics for life because of the proven corruption allegations and conviction he had got from the Supreme Court of Pakistan. So uh, after his disqualification, it has been the primary objective of the uh, the uh, former opposition and the current government to, uh, uh, to, to do the same to Imran Khan and bring him to a negotiation table so that all of these uh, charges can be removed. Imran Khan has been hinting towards something called the NRO2, which is the National Reconciliation Ordinance. Uh, in uh, During Musharraf's later years, when the military dictator Musharraf was in power in Pakistan, he wrote up this law for giving all the crimes of all political parties in Pakistan. This uh, law was uh, deemed illegal by the Supreme Court later because you cannot just forgive all convictions as uh, you know as a dictator this uh, imran khan has been alleging that this government wants to ha- have a similar law where they forgive the crimes of all the, the all the politicians the former crimes of all the like prime minister uh, nawaz sharif and asif ali zardari they have huge corruption allegations and convictions against them so they want to they want them forgiven and if they put imran khan in a similar position by these stumped up charges by you know, a contempt of court by terrorism charges, they will push him on a negotiation table where they, he will agree to remove all of those and they can uh, start their lives afresh in Pakistan politics. Yeah, and you were mentioning earlier, Wakas, about how, you know, Pakistan is a big, important country. And I'm curious how you situate um, the issues going on there, the situation inside Pakistan, with broader trends uh, inside the, the South Asia region. Of course, it's there by, you know, Pakistan, excuse me, it's there by Afghanistan, India, Nepal, Iran, and, and countries like this. And so how do you think the situation inside of Pakistan sort of um, impacts uh, the surrounding region? Uh, this this surrounding region and Pakistan's presence, this whole neighborhood is very rowdy and very rough. Uh, right now in Afghanistan, a war has just ended. Pakistan has been fearing that once Americans have left and once they, the Taliban government settles in there, there might be attacks against Pakistan supported by the Taliban government. There. And there have been negotiations going on around that side. On the sides of on the side of the eastern side on India, uh, India and China and America is involved in some weird global uh, political struggle that will shape the next century. It seems so. Within this, Pakistan is also a friend of China, and Pakistan also wants to balance its relationship with America. Because and when before the Imran uh, Khan's ouster. When Imran Khan went to Russia, uh, this was seen as, as, you know, in a very poor light by America. And Pakistani military at that time placed itself in a position where it, it could say to Americans that this was Imran Khan's personal decision to do so. And at that time, the Pakistani army chief gave a statement that Pakistan should, you know, side with Ukraine more 
which Imam Khan was not doing at that time. So all of these global uh, political things that have happened uh, Pakistan is like right in the midst of. Uh, right now, there are the massive protests that Imran Khan is like taking advantage of. One part that all of these people are out on the streets is the electricity prices, prices are rising massively. And uh, Imran Khan says that these oil prices would have been much lower was he allowed to purchase cheaper oil from Russia? And Pakistan cannot uh, buy cheap oil from Russia now because this, this new government has been brought in by, uh, you know, American help, so they won't go to Russia. And Pakistan, Pakistan would not, you know, take advantage of that situation because it's more beholden to America and part of this political complication. So, yes, all of these are like really they really interplay with Pakistani politics, and these international uh, events have a big uh, impact on Pakistan. And Pakistan, Pakistan's descent into like this chaos might have a huge impact on the neighbors too, with respect to India. India, they might be concerned from India about what could happen. They were not really happy with the Prime Minister Imran Khan's government. They might be closer. They, they might be closer to the Shabazz government. There are indications that the Pakistani military wants some uh, talks with India. There are talks of like these back channel talks that are now going on with India. So uh, yes, these all of these things are really uh, connected. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Wakas, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a Black August commemoration in Baltimore. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Erica Keynes, founder of Liberation Through Reading and the editor of the Hood Communist blog. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Erica, um, I know that up in Baltimore, you all will soon be having a curb fest for political prisoners in observance of Black August. And I was just hoping you could tell us more about that, what you all have planned, who's involved and what should we know about this event? Yeah, this would be the fourth, I believe, the fourth Curfest for Political Prisoner event. It started last year in Philly um, with a bunch of different organizations um, that do a lot of political prisoner work. And the idea behind Curfest is to connect organizers with community members and raise awareness about political prisoners and just sort of share ways that people can tap in and get involved. Um, what we noticed um, is that the people who are involved in the political prisoner movement have been involved for decades, right? So we want to uh, get some new faces, some fresh faces, some fresh ideas into reinvigorating this fight as, um, you know, as we see Black August becoming more and more um, 
popularized. We want to be able to contain it and focus it um, on political prisoners. Yeah, and the idea behind Curbfest, or at least the structure of it, I think is unique for this particular topic because it's not like your traditional, very serious uh, uh, political education type of teaching format, but it's almost like a sort of festival that uses that, that uh, you know, festival community block party vibe to deliver political education. So explain how that would work for people who are trying to, you know, kind of having a hard time understanding how you, you know, have a, a festival-like uh, event and talk about the serious work of advocating for political prisoners. Right. So um, Curfest uh, initially began um, as a spinoff of uh, Russ uh, Schultz III, Russell Warren Schultz's son. Um, he, he threw Porch Fest events in Philadelphia. Um, so the idea behind it is really to um, to engage in outreach to neighborhoods. So it's a community building, base building, political education event that invites community. We agitate folks as they come along because we're essentially just posting up. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's emphasis on not needing to ask the state for permission, so we're not getting any sort of permits or anything. What we are doing, however, is speaking with um, local businesses. Um, speaking with the community members and letting them know, hey, on this day, we're going to be here. We're going to be throwing this event. Come out. Come support it. Come get involved. Come see what it's about. Tell folks to come out. We're, um, it's, we're having it on Sunday in Baltimore on August 28th. From 1 to 4, we're having it at Nomo Nomu, which is at 702 Howard Street. That's right there by the light rail. So we intend to agitate there. The purpose really is... Um, that anybody can do it. Anybody can tap in and be involved, but we do need to get the people involved. So how do we get the people involved? We bring the people in. I think it's sort of that sort of build it and they will come concept. Yeah, and that's pretty cool. And I think it's dope that um, this idea literally sprung from the idea of, you know, the the son of a, a political prisoner in Russell Schultz III. And Erica, when we think about sort of the spirit of Black August and resistance and uh, revolutionary study and how that connects to how we actually fight uh, this system that is still holding and has held so many of our political prisoners, really an entire generation of uh, fighters and revolutionaries. Revolutionaries. Why is it important, you think, to sort of have this kind of grassroots oriented um, event where people can come and learn about these political prisons? And how do you see that as factoring in into just what Black August really is? Yeah, well, we understand that these people have been jailed on charges related to their resistance to oppression and repression. Um, so they have been. Um, and continue to be targeted by the state for their political beliefs and on their and their actions, and and that's also the case for politicized prisoners. Um, uh, those are particularly um, people who had no political meaning, but once they were inside, took a position um, and and continue to be tortured um, and by the state. I, I do want to draw emphasis though, because um, yesterday you see the People's Progress Party had a Black August PE, and one of the things that we noted was that when George Jackson went to prison in 1960, there were about 200,000 people in prison throughout the country. And as of 2011, the U.S. Department of Justice reported that 
one in 34 adults, so that's more than 7 million people, are under some sort of correctional supervision, whether it be prison, parole, or probation. So the growth of incarceration rates in the U.S. for more than four decades has evolved, has evolved in a continued growth of, under, of understanding the causes and the consequences of those in prison, um, how that affects their families and the communities. Yeah, and I think it's that connection, the the people who are under some kind of uh, surveillance or supervision from uh, the state of incarceration in this country that makes CurbFest relevant to every community. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the, those efforts in where you will be holding your CurbFest in Baltimore? What are the issues uh, facing communities in Baltimore? Baltimore around incarceration and political prisoners and policing that curb fed, that makes this curb fest event so timely. Right. I think that one of the cases that I always draw to um, that I've been a long-time supporter of has been the Keith Davis Jr. case, primarily because while people have for a long time tried to position it as a single-issue case, I think that it webs a lot of the issues with not only incarceration, but the state oppression um, that's facing that city, whether it be the obscene amount of shots. Um, that's the product of the deadly exchange training or the weaponry that they have as a product of the 1033 program. Baltimore City is also under an intense amount of surveillance. I mean, there was a whole, uh, you know, a struggle to get these spy planes out of the air um, that preceded uh, COVID-19. So, you know, I think Baltimore City, especially when we just see what happened recently with the squeegee boys, um, the 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 way that the the primaries are fixated on what to do about the, these uh, young black boys, um, and that being political campaigns, um, the growth of policing, the expansion of policing through uh, Operation Relentless Pursuit. I mean, Baltimore City definitely, definitely um, is a is a primer for the interconnections and how they affect everyday people. And I think that when we look at um, folks like Eddie Conway, who's a former political prisoner, that does great work, um, and and station in Baltimore City, we can see that these things are not too far removed from how we are understanding um, ourselves, our histories, and what we are actually facing today. Um, One of the things that I also like to emphasize, especially as I talk about all of those different entities is that political prisoners are created every day. And I think that we've seen that especially post the uh, 2020 uprisings. Um, You know, we still have comrades who are still facing the brunt of that, you know, legal actions behind that. And that's almost two years ago. So I think that we really need to understand that. um, Where, Of course, we want to see our elders out of jail. We do not want to see our, our elders die out. But we do also do not want to see them create new elders. We want to see Josh Williams come home. We want to see Keith Davis Jr. come home, et cetera. So, yeah. So that's why the emphasis, you know, we want, we want to place emphasis on why the people should tap in. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think making those uh, uh, local connections uh, to these broader issues, like you're saying, Erica, is really important to sort of uh, uh, really helping folks understand why something like uh, Black August is not only relevant, but it's not simply a thing of um, upholding or uh, exalting the history, even though we certainly should, you know, uh, study history and understand it and all those sorts of things. But we're not really talking about events or issues from a bygone era. I mean, we're we're talking about a living history, th- things that people are experiencing right here, right now. And in some instances, like I think you mentioned, um, have been for decades and that really uh, why political prisoners are necessary in a system, in a society like we live under here in the capitalist United States, where, you know, sometimes I think it can seem that, uh, you know, what happens with the police in terms of racist police terror exists in a vacuum when in reality it's connected to, you know, the material conditions in black, poor, working and oppressed uh, communities. You know what I mean? And so for me, this whole orientation around events like the Curb Fest, I feel like point to that uh, that fundamental root, if you will, of how a lot of these issues, whether it's racist policing or political prisoners or suppression of protests and what have you, are all sort of connected and based in the contradictions of capitalism itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to that point, the uh, the prison industrial complex, it must be organized again. And I think that that's the emphasis of this, that we have to make that a stronghold and a, and a point of emphasis. The disproportionate numbers of black and brown people in prison are evidence that, you know, the innately racist system is barely, you know, like George Jackson understood it to be an evolution of slavery. Um, it has never been a, a humane solvent for quote unquote crime. And certainly not for marginalized people or people living on the margins whose very existence is criminalized from housing to birthing, right? So because we are conditioned to believe that punishment is a solvent, that quote-unquote criminals deserve neglect and mistreatment, we collectively sort of turn our heads away from the strife of political prisoners, right? Because we understand that, well, if they're alleged to have done this bad thing, then of course they probably deserve the punishment. But that's not at all the case, right? We are people at war. And I do appreciate elders who have been in this movement who emphasize that understanding that we are a colonized people and understanding that we are at war requires that we do what people do when they are at war. The first thing you do is you act for your people back. And that needs to be emphasized. We want to free them all. That's always been, you know, the call. Absolutely. And Erica, where can people go if they want to find out more about the Curb Fest for Political Prisoners in Baltimore? You can go to curbfest.com. Um, you can also see the ones that we've had in the past. You can see videos and pictures of the one in Philadelphia. There was one held in Boston last year. Uh, this past Saturday, there was one in Harlem. And this Sunday, uh, August 28th at 702 Howard Street, we will be hosting one in Baltimore. Um, and also on the website, like I said, anybody can tap in. We have made it extremely accessible. So we have done all the legwork in finding the information about political prisoners, uh, doing the write-ups so that people who want to do NPE around this, um, it's, you can grab it. There, we have all the websites updated. Um, 
and then we also have an information form that you can fill out that if you do want to host a Curfest in your uh, prospective local area, that you can just reach out to us by filling out that form, and we will uh, be hosting another uh, sort of uh, PE or a teaching, rather, on how to put one together. We have all the tools for folks. You just really just have to print and set it up. Beautiful. Well, we thank you so much, Erica, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Carappa, the co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be back with you. Thank you. Absolutely. And it's great to have you back, Chris. And, you know, uh, I'm typically pretty critical of social media and social media culture and the addictive way that a lot of these platforms are designed and the sort of space it can take up in our everyday lives. But there's some really interesting news uh, uh, coming out of TikTok, where a number of creators are actually joining in uh, the labor struggle at Amazon. Uh, Tell us what's happening here, Chris, and how are these TikTok creators involved? Yeah, this is really, really fantastic. And I think it shows some of the positive power that social media can have when it comes to, you know, creating solidarity. So uh, this is the People Over Prime pledge. There are around 70 TikTok creators that got a following of over 51 million people, which is, uh, you know, pretty significant on, on TikTok. And they're saying that they're not going to do any kind of partnerships with Amazon. And that means for them um, doing, you know, shutting down storefronts and things like that until the company agrees to what the Amazon labor union is asking for and demanding. And of course, Amazon labor union, ALU, has been struggling in places across the United States uh, in concert also with workers in Europe and many other places uh, to just have decent working conditions and a living wage and safe, uh, safe warehouses for its workers, for drivers, for anyone who's impacted uh, or, you know, works for or around Amazon. And of course, Amazon has been very, uh, very against anything, any of these changes. We saw in Bessemer, we saw in a number of other locations where there have been union drives that even the NLRB has come in and said that Amazon has violated labor law um, in its campaigns against the union. Um, and Amazon, you know, is losing this fight, and it knows that. We see the unionization efforts at Starbucks, at uh, other coffee shops, at bars, and of course at Amazon, and it's really picking up. And so the, the solidarity that these TikTok stars and, and creators are showing is really significant because they could use their platforms to continue to, you know, make some money, get wealthy, things like that. 
Uh, but what they're saying is, if you know, we're going to stop being part of the Amazon influencer program. We're taking this pledge, people over prime, uh, and we're not going to work with Amazon until the company actually recognizes uh, the the workers, the labor union, and gives them what they've been demanding. I mean, and we're not talking about ridiculous things, right? We're talking about, you know, a safe work environment where people are able to take a break, where they're not, you know, just pushed to do more and more and be more so-called productive in less time. Um, and, you know, to be able to just, you know, make enough money to live on, which is very difficult to do, even if you work you know, at an Amazon warehouse. You know, we don't often think about, uh, you know, the, the the massive number of people who work at these warehouses to bring us the, the products that we, you know, that we order and we get on Prime or however we get them to us. But, you know, this company could not work, could not survive without the warehouse workers. And it's absolutely treating them like trash, uh, like they're expendable, because that's how it views them. Yeah. And just, you know, to drive that point home that what that you were just making, Amazon is the second largest private employer in the U.S. It has a higher rate of worker injuries than its competitors. And of course, it's increasingly become the target for organized labor as it should. But this group of uh, uh, TikTok creators, this is not the first time they've gotten involved in uh, supporting union uh, efforts uh, in certain companies. What else have they done before getting uh, uh, hooking up with uh, Gen, uh, with the uh, Amazon uh, organizers? Yeah, there have been a number of various other uh, campaigns that many TikTokers have been involved in, but I think the Amazon one is actually the the most significant one. Um, and I think you know we're talking about this one, you know, particularly because it's so it's so critical that you know with Amazon being you know this giant employer uh, and this notoriously evil <laughs> employer. I mean, we can just say that you know this is extremely uh, evil. Uh, you know, saying you know pointing this out and using this platform that they have is you know a good use of this social media. And I also want to you know just point out too that Amazon hasn't been ignoring TikTok, right? I mentioned that they have this Amazon influencer program. And in fact, you know, they've been flying out TikTok stars and other people, you know, to have meetings, to have gatherings, you know, giving them promotional materials and things like that. Um, and even in the face of that, we're seeing all of this pressure against Amazon. Uh, and it's a really, really significant story. Yeah, definitely. And also, isn't uh, wasn't there a situation where Amazon was also trying to cultivate relationships with some of these uh, creators and influencers as well? And uh, are, are some of them involved in this uh, Amazon campaign? Uh, yes, Amazon definitely has been trying to, you know, to to build these relationships. And we should say, you know, many of the many of the social media or very, you know, large companies do this. It's a little unique for Amazon because they're not a platform for social media in and of themselves. But YouTube does this, TikTok does, Instagram does. They all have these kind of curated programs for large creators where they, you know, want to make sure effectively that the creators like them and don't speak against them when the company, you know, uh, eventually does something awful. Um, Amazon does that with, you know, and then they partner with those who are on, obviously, you know, of course, other platforms like TikTok, 
like Instagram and others uh, in order to, you know, curry favor with them to, to make it say, you know, to say, you know, we're going to have a partnership. It's going to be a sponsored or paid or however you want to phrase it partnership with Amazon. Uh, you know, we're, you know, you can have a store, on Amazon through the partner program, uh, where, you know, you can make a cut of what we do. We can give you deals. We'll give your, you know, your, your viewers deals, things like that. Uh, and still we're seeing people who have been engaged in that partner program really being won over by the demands of the ALU and saying, I cannot in good conscience, uh, be part of this program while the workers at these warehouses, uh, while the drivers at this, for this company are being treated so poorly. Definitely. And switching gears a little bit, Chris, uh, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC, has written an alert to the Federal Trade Commission concerning an automated decision-making system that has been introduced by Airbnb that they say could run the risk of discriminating against its users. Uh, Help us understand uh, this technology and what it is that uh, EPIC is getting at here. Yeah, Amazon, uh, sorry, Airbnb recently announced that they're going to have what they call anti-party technology, um, which, you know, so what they're saying. That just sounds bad. Yeah, what they're saying is that, you know, if, if you, you know, if you want to reserve an Airbnb and they think you're just going to use it to, you know, trash the place, have all your friends over, have a big party, they're going to, you know, potentially block your reservation. Some of the things that they're going to use as signals for this anti-party technology uh, is to, you know, see, you know, where is the reservation? Is it close to home or is it far away? How long is it for? Is it for one night, maybe two nights, or is it uh, for a longer period of time? What is the history of this person's reservations on the system? And I think that this is, uh, first of all, this can't work. This is going to cause so many problems with uh, with reservations that are going to be canceled. I mean, just, just think about it this way. What if you only ever can afford to go away? You know, you need to get away for a weekend. You do maybe just a Friday night and 45 minutes away from home. Is that going to get flagged as potential party behavior because you're not going on a you know, what Airbnb would consider a longer vacation. You're not going away far from where you live. You're just going to get away for a night or two nights because that's what you can afford, whether it's because of, you know, personal situation, finances, time off work, things like that. But they're also, you know, Airbnb also does a whole lot of uh, analysis already to to identify what they call high risk reservations. um, And, it's, it's really a racist, classist system. Um, they assign using uh, a tool called Truly, T-R-O-O-L-Y, which Epic has spoken about in the past, um, a number of, of triggers to identify whether somebody's trustworthy or not, including their name, email address, location, social connections, employment and education history. I mean, think about all these things that, you know, are going into whether or not you can just rent an apartment or a house or whatever it is for the weekend to get away. And of course, there is going to be no transparency into how Airbnb is using or abusing this new algorithm that they are deploying in the United States. Uh, And I think it's a given, really, that we're going to see people talking about how they just wanted to get away for a weekend and 
Airbnb said, no, you can't do that. We think you're going to have a party, likely with very little recourse. You know, Airbnb has gone from being pretty consumer friendly to really being uh, extremely accommodating to hosts. And let's not forget, you know, the hosts on Airbnb, for the large part, are not, you know, individuals renting out, you know, a garage apartment or something like that. There are many, many people now who just buy up properties in order to rent them on Airbnb. They are destroying neighborhoods, really, uh, because of this. Yeah. And of course, you know, folks who do shift work, uh, who uh, can only get one or two days off uh, from work, who can't afford to travel uh, long distances away from home, can only afford, you know, somewhere close to home for a getaway. Of course, they're going to be excluded uh, and targeted by this nifty new algorithm. But, gee, I wonder how this algorithm would work or if there's anything that works to raise some of the Airbnb renters because there are horror stories about Airbnb owners uh, doing really terrible things to uh, Airbnb renters that there doesn't seem to be an answer for, Chris. Yeah, exactly. And that's why Airbnb is so positive for the, the, the owners, the people who are renting the places out and less so for the people renting. I mean, I've had some really awful situations involving places, you know, still under construction, <laughs> you know, with, with cockroaches in them. And I think everyone knows somebody, if they don't have a story themselves, they know somebody who has a similar story. And these renters, these, these, these owners, we should say, are, you know, allowed to continue to just put these, uh, these, these listings up uh, without really any kind of punishment. Uh, they're allowed to charge exorbitant fees in the cleaning fees. Right. You see something, it's like listed at like 95 bucks a night. You're like, great, a couple hundred dollars for two nights. And all of a sudden it's 350 because there's a, a giant cleaning fee associated with it. All of these ways that the owners uh, of the properties listed on Airbnb try to trick people. Really, it comes down to classist and racist discrimination. And Airbnb with this new anti-party algorithm is playing right into that. Definitely. And there was another story that I wanted to touch on today, Chris, about um, a father that took pictures of his young child to send to the doctor and was actually uh, flagged by Google uh, for criminal activity. Uh, What's going on here? Yeah, there's a guy and we just know his name as Mark, um, who took who, who was concerned about some rashes on his child's genitals and took some photos at the request of his doctor, sent them to the doctor. And the next thing he knows, Google has shut down his Google account. So his calendar, his Google Drive, his email, all of these things. And he's under investigation for child pornography. Uh, We should say the police cleared him. They looked into this and they cleared him and said, you know, this was not a case of, you know, somebody creating or trafficking in any kind of, you know, child sexual uh, exploitative material. But Google refuses to give him his account back. Google says, you know, we're, we're not going to give this account back. We're not even going to respond. Um, so the way this happened is that Google is just watching everything that you upload to their services. They're scanning automatically images that you upload to identify whether they are known images of uh, child sexual abuse material or CSAM or whether they could potentially be new uh, materials of that type. Um, and then a human reviewed it and said, yes, this is the, you know, this, this is abuse, abusive material, or I believe it is. 
It was then sent to NICMIC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which partners with these tech companies and law enforcement uh, in the effort to prevent child abuse. Well, again, this guy was cleared. Uh, the police cleared him. They said this is not a case of child abuse. Google still refuses to give him his account back. And he's not the only one. There have been other people who have posted on forums, on Quora and others, who uh, say the same thing happened to them. And again, it was because he took a picture and sent it to his doctor at the doctor's request of his minor child's uh, genitals because of the concern a health concern that he had. It's a really chilling story. You know, everyone wants to stop the exploitation of children, without a doubt. But the way these companies are running these types of programs in this invasive way with no recourse, uh, you know, really should give us all pause. Yeah, definitely. And of course, this raises the question for me about, uh, you know, is this something else that we have to be concerned about in regard to protecting our medical information from a company that has the power to defy law enforcement when law enforcement says that no crime has been committed? How can we trust this company to protect something as sensitive as our medical information? I mean, I think the real concern here for me is what is Google doing with these people's information after they shut down the accounts? Are they deleting it and saying, okay, we don't have it anymore? Are they just keeping it around to continue targeting them? Uh, are they adding it to the treasure trove of information that even if you don't have an account, the you know an official account, these so-called shadow accounts that the social media and search companies create on you in order to sell advertising. I mean, there's so many questions that Google is refusing to answer. I think there will be potentially lawsuits on this, uh, you know, not from this particular person, but because we've seen so many others coming out saying, uh, you know, saying that they've dealt with the same thing. I think there's potential for a lawsuit in which, you know, discovery could show us a whole lot that we don't know right now. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington, D.C., 
you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, a former Louisville police detective has admitted that she helped uh, mislead a judge into authorizing the raid on Breonna Taylor's Louisville apartment, which, of course, set in motion the operation that led to Breonna Taylor being fatally shot and killed by the police. Now, namely, we're talking about former detective uh, Kelly Goodlett, who pled guilty in federal court to one count of conspiracy after admitting that she worked with another officer to falsify a search warrant application and later took part in the cover up to hide their act. Um, now, uh, reportedly, this would suggest that uh, Ms. Goodlett may be coordinating with Justice Department prosecutors who have charged her along with two other former uh, police officers in Louisville over their particular roles in getting that search warrant for that raid. So there's more movement on the Breonna Taylor piece. Luckily, just, uh, I mean, just very obviously a wild conspiracy that led to this woman being shot and killed for no reason. Um, oh, also at the top of the hour, charges have been dropped against Atlanta police officer in the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks, which was an incident that we covered pretty extensively uh, back in 2020 when it first happened. Of course, this is the shooting that took place uh, at a Wendy's in Atlanta, Georgia, back in June of 2020. Eventually, that a Wendy's was shut down and and organizers turned it into uh, basically a memorial slash uh, political gathering place. Also wanted to give an update on a uh, story that we talked about yesterday with the three uh, Arkansas cops that brutally beat that man on uh, a video. Uh, the three officers actually were suspended uh, on Sunday and an investigation was launched following the uh, release of the video. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the report here from Common Dreams that was publishing on that says, quote, Arkansas State Police Special Agents are investigating two Crawford County Sheriff's deputies and Omar Mulberry Police Department officer who were recorded earlier Sunday kneeing and punching 27-year-old Randall Worcester of Goose Creek, South Carolina, and slamming the man's head into the pavement while holding him down a short distance from a convenience store in Mulberry. Now, reportedly, employees at that store had called the police after Worcester uh, allegedly spat and spat on and threatened them. And so because of this allegation of threatening and spitting on people, this man was brutal 
brutally beaten. Now, Worcester is facing charges of second-degree battery, resisting arrest, refusal to submit, uh, possessing an instrument of crime, criminal trespass, criminal mischief, terroristic threatening, and second-degree assault. And um, although we were talking about this within the context of racist police terror, I want to point out it doesn't appear that uh, Mr. Worcester actually is black. But be that as it may, it's still sort of a glaring example of the kind of police terror that people can be subject to for the flimsiest of reasons. I mean, remember George Floyd was killed supposedly for trying to pass a a, a counterfeit uh, uh, bill. I forget the amount, but even still, something as flimsy as that can make the difference between life is death when you're dealing with this uh, institution of police in this racist capitalist country. But uh, the first thing that I wanted to touch on today, Jackie, is that Reportedly, the Biden White House is uh, expected to make an announcement soon concerning the cancellation of up to $10,000. That's right, $10,000 whole dollars in a student loan debt um, per borrower in connection to an income threshold. Uh, uh, reportedly, uh, this relief is designed uh, for forgiveness to people who earn less than one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year. Now, this uh, uh, is an issue already amongst, you know, uh, progressives and advocates and other Democratic lawmakers who was trying to get Biden to uh, cancel up to fifty thousand dollars in student debt per borrower. And they've uh, been speaking out uh, uh, about this uh, with them basically saying that, you know, millions of people would uh, basically still be left with massive student debt balances, uh, with the average federal student debt loan uh, debt balance being 30,000, excuse me, $37,667, according to the Education Data Initiative. Uh, Representative Cory Bush, Democrat of Missouri, tweeted out, quote, student debt is a nearly $2 trillion crisis. A president of the United States must cancel student debt all of it. And uh, Warren Gunnels, who's the staff director of Bernie Sanders, said, quote, Republicans will attack forgiving $10,000 in means testing student debt as ferociously as if Biden canceled all student debt. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, he added that uh, this would demoralize, quote, tens of millions of Americans who will still be drowning in debt. Think big or go home. Cancel all of it. And so, you know, to me, Jackie, obviously $10,000 in debt relief, pretty insufficient. And uh, but on the same token, I also feel that there's probably a couple of things motivating um, the Biden White House to do this. I mean, number one, of course, where we're moving ever closer to midterm elections here in the U.S., where the Democrats are going to have to point to something uh, uh, for their voter base to hold on to as you know a reason why they should vote for them. And then also just I think the public pressure that has been coming around this issue of student debt, which is a massive problem in the United States. And uh, while this seems like just another kind of half measure, I, I honestly feel like it should serve as a kind of fuel for us to keep pushing for this and to really fight for uh, 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 more cancellation and ultimately the total cancellation that we know that we need. I mean, absolutely true. I mean, this will be if the Democrats do this. And, you know, for for the first time, I think, in his administration, I'm actually feeling like Biden will do this. I, I, I do think that he will actually go ahead and cancel, do this $10,000 uh, loan cancellation. And he may even do it in conjunction with a further um, extension of the uh, student loan uh, payment 
repayment moratorium because uh, most people, as you pointed out, Sean, have more than $10,000 in student loan debt. And that's all fine and good. But not only is it not only is it just a half measure, and and it's really not a half measure because we're not talking about helping like literally half of the people. This is a drop in the student loan debt bucket. For people who owe more than $10,000 and are on uh, these income-based student loan uh, repayment programs, that uh, $10,000 amount that's forgiven is not going to help them at all, and it's actually going to cause their interest rates to go higher. So they will end up paying more money. And I mean, this was reported in Forbes magazine, not not a progressive anti-capitalist outlet at all. But if Forbes magazine can point out the uh, uh, flaws in this gambit from the Democrats to just cancel two thousand dollars, which is it's just a political uh, it's a political ploy for the Democratic Party. If Forbes can point out the insufficiency of this program in dealing with this issue of student loan debt in this country, then, I mean, certainly we can push the Democrats to do better than this. It's not enough. It is not enough. And and it's it is. And to me, Sean, it is so insulting that the Biden administration is pretty much pretty much acting as if they're being you know they're 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 kicking and screaming, dragging their heels, you know, being forced to do this by you know literally holding their feet over a fire when this is really the easiest, simplest thing this could have been done on day one. It's just ten thousand dollars the day that he was inaugurated, he could have said, and you know what? I'm canceling ten thousand dollars in student loan debt, and we'll see what we can do after that so I mean the fact that the the Democrats are trying to make such a big deal out of this very paltry offer uh to 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 address this issue is incredibly insulting. And I, and I don't think even if Biden does this, it bodes any better for him and the Democrats in the midterms. Yeah. And I mean, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Joe Biden like ran on, on student debt, um, you know, as one of these uh, sort of uh, popular measures, because that is something that, of course, is broadly popular mm-hmm. with people in the United States, as a lot of us do have to deal with this student loan debt. I mean, I've said this a million times. This country is always telling its young people that they have to go to school, get their education. But yet when they come out on the other side, uh, uh, they've got this albatross around their neck that a lot of us carry around uh, for the rest of our lives. And it's like just like this economic burden that people are just uh, expected to shoulder. Meanwhile, in socialist countries like Cuba, there's zero dollars in student debt. As a matter of fact, your education is uh, paid for up to uh, the graduate level, if I'm not mistaken. And so that that's just one example of how this uh, capitalist system, on the one hand, is portrayed to us as the greatest system that there ever was and all these sorts of things. And aren't you so glad that you have all these opportunities to get educated? And yes, it is good to be able to have access to education for those of us who 
who actually have access to it. It's not as though everybody can. But even still, it's almost like you're punished for doing this thing that uh, you're sort of socially um, expected to do uh, on a number of different levels. And by the way, what that degree is actually going to mean for you um, is pretty up in the air, you know, depending on what it is. Uh, You know what I mean? And so it's just a a sort of a wild thing that uh, it's just one more example of a popular policy that the Democrats could 100% do, that Joe Biden right now, as we speak, could 100% do if he felt like it. And we've talked about this before. You know, there, there are a number of things that uh, Joe Biden could do with the stroke of a pen without uh, having to uh, consult Congress or anything like that, that he simply chooses not to. Every day, Joe Biden wakes up and chooses not to cancel all of student debt. That is a conscious choice. It's not because the Republicans are pressuring him or anything like that. But this is Mr. Nothing will fundamentally change. And as I say, that is one promise that he has actually stuck to. And so it's just, uh, you know, to me, sort of highlights how this choice, when we talk about these two ruling class parties, the duopoly, the Democrats and the Republicans, the choice that we're faced with every two and four years is really a non-choice because they represent the same class interests. They just express and pursue those class interests in different ways. You know what I mean? And so when we talk about student debt, when we talk about the codifying of Roe into law, which the Democrats also could have did and that Joe Biden literally promised he would do. And of course did not because he doesn't actually believe in abortion rights. If you check his um, uh, uh, political record, it's just one example after another of things that would have an immediate positive material impact on millions of people inside this country, but that uh, uh, the Democrats just straight up uh, refuse to do. And meanwhile, while they're kicking around this idea of uh, $10,000 in debt relief, I mean, you know, Biden has spent billions of dollars in military funding for Ukraine for some weapons and other stuff that just ends up on the dark net and then goes God knows where. And so it's just a complete cluster all around Jackie, when we talk about how, you know, imperialism hits us in our pockets and how the interests of capital are always prioritized over and above anything that is going on with the rank and file person in this country. And this is a huge part, I think, of what contributes to the deterioration of the social fabric that's been eating away at the United States for a long time now. That's this rot that we talk about, you know what I mean? And I would say that only the capitalist class is to blame. But what that what that requires of us then, right? And what that obligates us to as movement people, as activists and organizers is to fight that class and that system that is responsible for our, our, our suffering and bring about a new system where our interests finally are put it at the center of a society's interests. Yeah. And you know what? When you bring up the issue of class interest, I view this student loan debt issue as a way the ruling class is waging war on 
uh, the working class and the poor. Because think about it. They 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 tell you in this country that in order to get ahead, you know, in order not to be working class and poor, um, to get ahead economically, you should get an education to gain more skills so you can move up into the professional classes, whatever those, you know, classes and skills are. But you can't do that because education is expensive, far, far more expensive than it was when I was in college, way more expensive. Like tuition is 200 times more expensive, if not more, than it was back in the 80s, right? So folks my age, of course, can sit around and talk about, well, you know, we work two part-time jobs to pay for our tuition. Well, yeah, because tuition was like 60 bucks per credit hour in most cases. And now we're talking about tuition that's either, you know, between three, five, seven, eight hundred, a thousand dollars per credit hour plus board, room and board. Oh my God, it's ridiculous. So you can't afford an education, but you want to move up in a society. So what do you do? You take out student loans. Right. That, that's what you do, because that's the only way you can afford this education. And then when you cannot pay back these student loans because the job that you were promised with that education is probably not out there at the income that would allow you to pay back those student loans and, you know, afford rent and feed yourself and, you know, not walk around naked or in, you know, tatters, then they tell you that, well, sorry, you just have to pay this debt back. And and to me, it seems like this is the ruling class's way of punishing the working class and poor for daring to want to improve their economic situation in this country and making it so that they never do with all this great education. So, again, it's it, it is another example of this whole idea of the American dream that is clearly just a fallacious lie. Right. But it's also quite literally a debt trap that was designed by the ruling class and specifically by Joseph Robinette Biden, who was responsible for uh, the uh, situation existing now that you cannot dispatch your student loan debts in bankruptcy court. Mm. That's Joseph Robinette Biden. So, so you stuck with him. The same guy, Sean, who is his like hemming and hawing about canceling student loan debt and is acting like canceling $10,000 in student loan debt is just such a hard decision for him to make. He was not having these kinds of problems advancing legislation that said that student loan borrowers could not dispatch their student loan debt in bankruptcy court. Debt trap is not uh, uh, that that's not a hyperbolic statement at all. That's exactly what this is. Yeah, definitely. And it's so predatory. Like it's literally, you know, preying on these young people who by and large, because we're not we're not taught like I hate to use this phrase financial literacy, but like we're not we're not really taught how to like handle money that well in the United States. You know what I mean? They definitely don't teach us how to to pay taxes. I mean, you know what I mean? And uh, uh, all those sorts of things. And so you've got these young people and you're like, hey, just take some of this money. Just pay it back later, whenever. I mean, you're like 17, 18 years old. And you're like, yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, you're not thinking there's no way you can really conceive of how this could uh, affect you years down the line. And certainly no one at the institution is going to tell you because they just want to get you in the hole so they can keep that exploitation going. 
because that is a part of the lifeblood of the institution. And it's funny when you're talking about the, the you know these people who say, oh, you know, I paid off my debts working two jobs because they were so low. I mean, these are the same people that wonder like why young people don't like go up to jobs and ask for like a paper application. In 2022, well, just go and be visible like, like you know, that that's been done like like for a while now. Like, it's incredible how people are so out of touch on the one hand and then on the other, just completely arbitrarily attached like this, this moralism to paying off a debt as if paying or not paying a student loan debt is like a commentary on the quality of human being that you are. And it's like they won a maturity award or a cookie because they paid off their debt. Hey, look, congratulations. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people who simply aren't able to do that. And we're not seeing any uh, uh, relief or help coming from this government or this system to uh, help us. And then you've got these people who have this narrative that somehow canceling student loan debt is going to like just benefit the rich. I mean, just the narratives that come out that are completely nonsensical and baseless. Anything to protect the very system that is the root of this issue and so many others. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman in here chopping it up. Shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Uh, Jam, though, says, I'd rather go to the job site and fill out an app as opposed to creating an account where I won't remember the password. <laughs> you know what? Story time. Um, I I graduated uh, from Florida A&M back in 2010, right? And at the time, I was working this gig on campus. Well, not that long after that, uh, I was fired from that job, and I deserved to be because I was bad at it. <laughs> And so this kicked off the first extended period of unemployment that I ever experienced in my life. Just graduated now. And so my mind, you know, I'm supposed to be thinking about whatever the next big thing is and, you know, getting in some entry-level position to kick off my career. Nah, man, I was just broke and living off what what was left of, of, of my financial aid. And so when it first happened, I was like, okay, you know, cool. I'm going to hit the ground running. I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone. And since I don't have anything else to do, I'm just going to sit around and fill out applications all day, every day until something pops. Man, when I tell you that was the most soul-breaking experience of my life, I mean, you're filling out application after application after application of the same information. Some of these places had like the same form, but like clearly it was like the same format, but you still had to uh, 
uh, you know, uh, fill it out, and it would ask you to attach a resume and then ask you the information on your resume. Mm -hmm. Like it's there. (laughs) So what I started doing, I just started copying, uh, uh, copy and pasting, please see attached resume, just in everything, please see attached (laughs) resume. And I don't know, after like a week, two weeks, I mean, I was just completely flat and demoralized. Oh, man, it it was bad. Jackie, I don't know if you've ever been through anything like quite like that, but it's actually just incredible how crushing unemployment can be. Yeah. Because obviously there's a material aspect of it, right? You got to pay your bills. You got to buy food. Like you got to do, like you can't function without money mm-hmm. on the one hand. And then also we live in this capitalist society where you are supposed to identify, your identity is caught up in whether or not you work. And if you don't work and you're not, you know, uh, uh, having your labor exploited, you know what I'm saying, so that your wealth can be hoarded, well, then that's looked upon as a moral failure on your part. So there's just like layers to what that can do for you. And certainly under this system, there's very little protection for that. I mean, yeah, I was on, you know, I got unemployment benefits, wasn't a whole lot. It was enough to buy a little bit of of food. And that was basically it. And after a certain point, I had to uh, uh, pack it up and head back home, Mm -hmm. which is the last thing I wanted to do. But that is the story of so many people in my generation, particularly because we graduated right into a recession. Right. Where there were very few jobs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us ended up getting into uh, uh, fields that had nothing to do with what we studied. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. And so it, it's just sort of a snowball effect that happens as a result of uh, the exploitation of this system, Jackie. And this is like, that's just one example of like the social fallout from things like student debt that we're talking about that uh, uh, the ruling class in this country won't address because they're directly invested in it. Yeah, I mean, you know, just hearing you recount that story, I I just, I I thought about like conversations me and my mom had, mom had when I was in college and I graduated in 1985 from high school and I went to college and I went to uh, a University of District of Columbia because I couldn't afford to go to to Pennsylvania State, which is where I, where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. I got accepted, just couldn't couldn't get the student loan. So, you know, went to UDC, hated it, hated it. Oh, my God. It was like the 13th grade. And that's not like an insult toward UDC. I think that's just kind of where I was. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, I finally just told my mom, you know, you're wasting your money. Yeah, because I, I, I just this is just I. I hate it. It's it's just she's like, okay, cool, but you're going to need to get a job. I'm like, all right, cool. So I did. And the the whole idea of like, quote unquote, failing or, you know, not graduating college as it's seen as a failure, because like you said, Sean, we are in this country indoctrinated to believe that we are somebody if we have a college degree. Right. And we are our worth and value is associated with our profession. Right. And if that profession is a result of the degree, then we are truly somebody. We've got a title behind our name, some some letters. And and I'm not disparaging people with degrees or, you know, their PhDs, doctorates, got a few of them in my family. That's cool. But it's like, I remember having this conversation with my mom. And when I went through one of those periods of unemployment, 
it, and and granted now, this was before long before the recession. So in Washington, D.C., you could literally like quit a job on Friday and have another job on Monday. Or maybe that was just me because that's what I would do. <laughs> but, you know, my family was like, she ain't never not working. That's just amazing. But there was a period of time where like maybe two months or something where I couldn't find another job. I left another job because of some racist stuff that was good, you know, that went on. And I'm like, forget this. You know, I'm a receptionist. Y'all ain't paying me this much money to put up with this, you know, <laughs> torment. I'm out. Couldn't find another job. And my mom was like, you know, you could always come back home. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I really want to do that. And she said to me, you know what? This is what family is for. She's like, I, I don't understand this idea that we're supposed to kick our kids out mm -hmm. and just throw them out the window into this world that we know eats them alive. Right. She's like, so if you, she's like, look, give it a month. But if you're still having an issue in a month, you better bring your so-and-so back to this mm -hmm. house because I'm not seeing my baby on the street and then you're doing so-and-so and I don't want you doing crazy stuff, you know, because she, she's like, because I know you. You do some crazy stuff. <laughs> so, so, you know, luckily things worked out. But, but you know, that, that is all a part of, I think, this indoctrination into this capitalist system where everything that we rely on as basic human needs, basic human rights, housing, food, uh, you know, clothes, <laughs> um, all depend on the ability for us to acquire those things like we have to acquire them they're not just they're not just guaranteed because we're human and alive and breathing yeah and that's just that's just wild to me and and we don't know what it feels like we it, americans and and people in in the uk and people in other capitalist countries don't know what it feels like to live and not have to worry about those things and that, to me, is the beauty and the, the, the purpose of socialism, because it returns dignity to living, to mm -hmm. being human. It, it gives you the space to be your full human selves without having to worry about how do I acquire the um, accoutrements that I need to keep from, you know, living on the street <laughs> or doing some crazy things that my mom never articulated <laughs> that she thought I would do. The <laughs> whole category. It's, it's a whole category. But yeah, so I mean, just just I, I just really think this moment in time with this student loan uh, uh, debt issue is really yet another one of those really perfect examples of why socialism is the answer. Um, and, and we need to stop beating around the bush, even with older generation folks who are still not sold on the idea, because we all deserve to be treated like human beings. Definitely. We have a caller on the line here. Tamara, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Sean. Hi, Jackie. Uh, I really appreciate you two talking about student debt. And when you were discussing this, oh, I guess as you guys discussing the topic, um, it reminded me of something that I hear a lot um, in in graduate school about student loans. Because oftentimes there's like a like there's another stigma, and this is more anecdotal. Like I haven't, you know, um, 
research this yet, but from what I hear is that like, um, you're right. Like when people are in graduate school, they have a sense of, I guess, entitlement or something where they feel like they've achieved some kind of higher status of sort that, you know, gives them a particular kind of worldview, which I think can be elitist at times. And there's, there's, there's a lot of disparaging actually about people who have loans, to be honest, because oftentimes, well, Often, but typically, if you're in a certain kind of program, there 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 is funding, but not everyone gets funded. And sometimes programs will take students in without funding them. So students have to find a way or a job to pay for their living expenses. And so on top of, you know, trying to pay for your cost of living, you are being told if you take out a loan that, or somehow, I've heard one student say, oh, you're an idiot if you take out a loan. I kid you not. There's, and I'm listening to this, and I'm like, you don't even know the person's situation. Like, there's, there's oftentimes a certain kind of, like, callousness that people have towards loan holders. So not only are they struggling or to have this ball of chain of um, living with that, but they're also put down. Like, there's this kind of, like, um, I would say, like, people are seen as less than for actually having a loan. And so, but then it's like, why do institutions take in people? It's almost like they're setting up the students for failure. So, I don't know if this fits here, but I just wanted to show, like, there's another side that just living with the loan is one thing, but then there's also a perception of people with loans as well which can also be just as crushing because it's like then people are less likely to sympathize with loan holders. And I wonder to what extent that is why there's no student debt release to some extent. Like they failed in some kind of way. So, for, so, so thank you for hearing me out and I'll hear you guys soon. Thank you guys. All right. Thank you, Tamara. Appreciate you calling in and hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Jackie Lukeman, your thoughts point. I mean, people do. I mean, and, I, and I think this idea that that loan holders are losers, basically, uh, is held by largely, you know, my generation of folks and older because because of that same attitude. Well, you know, when I went to college, we paid off our tuition with two jobs. I, I mean, well, first of all, first of all, if anybody is working more than one job to do anything in this country, I don't care right. what, what it is. That's that's torture. Yeah. And, and just because I tortured myself to achieve some goal that I shouldn't have had to torture myself to achieve, it doesn't mean I want other people to be to torture themselves to achieve the same goal or anything at all. That's that's just such a, a, a hateful and and, uh, uh, you know, masochistic way of looking at this situation and people who were tricked quite literally into this debt trap. I mean, it's 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 this vicious cycle. You want to get ahead, you got to get an education. Want to get an education, can't afford it. Want to get an education, got to get take out these loans. Well, how how are you a loser? If the only way you can achieve the education that you are told is the ticket, the key to your ascendancy up the societal ladder, how are you a loser if the only way you can attain that attain that education is to take out a loan from the very institutions that are telling you this education is the way you get out of being among the working class and poor. That 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it seems to me that the reason why people would stigmatize taking out a student loan is the same reason why people stigmatize uh, SNAP benefits or welfare or any kind of government assistance. It's this demonization and stigmatization of any and everything associated with poor and working class people. Now, we've been talking this hour about, you know, how uh, uh, like student loan debt and things like this are uh, seen as a moral failure. Well, that's because poverty is seen as a moral failure in the United States. And so even for people that aren't necessarily poor that uh, get the, uh, you know, this kind of assistance are still tarred with this thing. I mean, to call someone an idiot for taking out a student loan, you're basically calling them an idiot for wanting to go to school and wanting to go to college. So what are they supposed to do? Just not go so that they can seem intelligent to you and, and have, you know, their options even further conscripted by, you know, the limitations of this system. And so this This, I think, is an example of how uh, uh, these attitudes, these ruling class attitudes filter down and cause uh, the rest of us to even thrust these things on each other. I mean, see, the thing about capitalism is that it stigmatizes need, which is insane. If you are hungry, if you are a homeless, if you are without the bare necessities of life, it is because there is something wrong with you. Not because you've been abandoned by this system, not because you've been thrown under the bus, not because the richest nation in the history of nations refuses to make its money and resources available for. No, it's because there is something intrinsically wrong with you and you are genetically predisposed for this kind of failure. No, this system is the failure. Capitalism is the issue at hand. And that's what we have to fight. And that's what we have to change. And I don't think it can be overstated the kind of like psychological and emotional impact that it has on people. Now, imagine you're going to school thinking you're doing the right thing. But in the back of your mind, you feel like you've done something wrong because you've taken out this loan. The same thing. Like I say, generations of people have dealt with in terms of all different kinds of government assistance. You know what I mean? And so imagine being made to feel bad because you simply want access to the necessities of life. This is the psychological impact of uh, capitalist exploitation, and this is a big part of what we have to serve as a corrective to as we engage the struggle for socialism. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukemont is here as we continue. And Jackie, I actually wanted to swing back to something that you mentioned a little earlier, since we've been talking about kind of the the cultural consequences of, of capitalism. And you're talking about how, you know, your mother didn't believe in this idea that, you know, we should just kick our kids out 
like they have an expiration date or, or, or something right. like that. And I wanted to dig a, a little bit more into that. You know, why do you think that that's such a, a, a prominent thing, something that is so present in the popular consciousness of people in the United States? Now, I don't know what it's like in, in different parts of the world, but there is sort of this thinking in the U.S. to where it's like, okay, you turn 18 Never mind the fact that the day before you were 17, you, I mean, yeah, you're, you're legal to an extent. You definitely achieve a level of legality, but I mean, a lot of ways you're still a child and yet you're supposed to basically be, be thrown to the wolves in this uh, big mean world, you know, uh, you know, perhaps without, you know, the kind of uh, training or understanding that's needed to really function as an adult. Being an adult is hard. <laughs> oh my God, it's right? so difficult. We do it because we have to, right? But it's 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 not something I think you can just kind of wake up and do. It's something that you have to learn. You have to learn these skills. You have to learn to pay bills. You have to learn what it means to budget and do all these sorts of things. You know what I mean? And so, you know, a lot of us go a long time just straight up not knowing any of this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, like, where do you think this thinking comes from, Jackie, that we have to take these young people who, you know, we love and we care for and that we raise and all these sorts of things and basically do the equivalent of like just tossing them into the lake and, and hoping that they learn how to swim. Yeah, I, I actually think it's it comes from this this ideology in this country that, you know, there's this magical age where everybody is and an, an quote unquote adult. Right. Like right. you said, it's it's 18, you know, and and. It's weird because you you can I think you can you have to register for the draft at 18 uh, if you're a, a male. Uh, but but you can't like legally drink until you're 21 in some places. Right. But but it's this idea that that there is this age or time when people are are considered an adult and it is not reflective of the actual reality that people still are developing, um, that our brains are still not completely, fully, you know, grown. They're not, they're actually technically, scientifically not finished growing even at 18. So even, you know, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20, 21, 22-year-olds still out here doing crazy stuff. I'm speaking about myself now because I don't want to offend anybody else. (laughs) But I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. So like going back to what my mom said when I told her, and she was very much like uh, that same kind of uh, of that thought when I said, look, I'm not going to stay in college. This is ridiculous. Mm. I hate it. Not doing well. Can't stand sitting in the class. These people are stupid. I think I know more than, than the professors do. They don't like it when I challenge them. This is a waste of our, my time and your money. And she's like, all right, you got to get a job. And if you go get a job, you might as well get your own place. You, right. you know, so it's 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 that kind of like it's kind of like that. Well, you know, if you think you're grown, OK, you're going to be grown and go out there and do, you know, take care of yourself. And And I think that's that's all fine and good. But. Without that cushion of family, without that welcome, um, that open door, you know, of of return when if things don't work out, you know, that which which is, I think, the problem. I don't think I have as much of an issue of people just, you know, automatically saying, you know, look, 17, 18 years old, you know, you've you know graduated high school or 22, you graduated college. And now it's time for you to go. Oh, I think that's that's OK if that's. If 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 
parents and the kids are are fine with that. I think I have a bigger problem with the stigmatization of people who are still at home mm, yeah. or who do have to return home. Because, see, in other cultures, in uh, like in Italy, nobody leaves home until they're pretty much almost married. You know, so you have this this phenomenon in in a lot of European countries where grown men are living at home and their mom is still cooking their meals and still washing their clothes. And mom is, uh, you know, uh, regulating who he dates. And and like if you are not taking care of my son the way I would take care of my son, Go away, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, the same is true with young women. They stay at home until they find a mate or until, you know, they can be, you know, financially independent. But the idea, I think, in other countries, and it's not just Italy, it's in Europe. I think this is kind of common in other cultures that are more communally focused than the individualistic culture of the U.S. and most capitalist countries. Because the, the the emphasis is on making sure that their offspring mature or reach some level of maturity where they are not, they're not like unleashed on, onto the world and just wreak crazy havoc on people doing crazy, irresponsible stuff. Mm. I, you, you, you don't know what you're doing when you're eight, when you're 18. Yeah. You don't know what you're doing when you're 22. When I when when my mother passed away and I was 28, I realized at 28, I still <laughs> didn't know what I was doing. Right. So I, I I mean and 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 I think it is the individualistic nature, this ridiculous lie of rugged individualism. Right. That we are indoctrinated with. That's that's it's just a part of this American mythos that that messes us up in so many ways, Sean. Yeah, and I'm looking at a 2018 piece on ABC News that says more than 65% of Italians aged 13 to 34 live at home with their parents. That's pretty wild, and nearly three-quarters of them are men. Italy has even coined a term for these men, mamoni or mama's boys. <laughs> well, certainly there's a fine line, but I think the point still stands. And, and along with that uh, rugged individualism, Jackie, there's this— it's a culture of disposability under this capitalist system that I think trickles down to the rest of us. And in the same way that this system will basically take a worker and, you know, chew them up and spit them out and, you know, uh, break their body and get, you know, exploit every ounce of work out of them that they can before they're sort of no longer useful. And then when they're, you know, when they're old and not able to physically work the way that they can, you know, there's not much really there to support them either uh, because, you know, they're not able to contribute to the, the, the capitalist process in that way. Therefore, they have to be pushed to uh, uh, the margins. So I think that same concept like so many things trickles down to our social interactions and the way that we think of each other, even our families and even people that we care about. And so the same way that the system, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, tosses us away, we toss each other away. And I don't even think that a lot of us realize how the, the, the culture of capitalism, and I feel like I've said this before, about how it just vulgarizes 
human relationships so so much at every single level and it's just like uh, it's just like this other thing and you know we <laughs> you know you know we don't get into this sort of thing on by means necessary a lot but this these the, the cyclical conversations that you see on social media about like dating and relationships about who pays for the first date and flamp all this stuff that we it's like the most obnoxious stuff all the time but what is always missing from those conversations is the reality of economic precarity Man, that right there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Every every day on the show, we talk about how uh, cost of living rises, wages are stagnating. And what's interesting on this particular piece, Jackie, is now people are living through a moment where capitalist decline is butting up against people's uh, preconceived notions about dating relationships and gender roles, which were already arcane and outdated to begin with, I would argue. And so there's a contradiction there that's causing, I think, a lot of, uh, of frustrations with people. But uh, instead of basically turning it into yet another battlefield of the gender war, which nobody wins, uh, I feel like the attention instead should be aimed at this system that uh, is really the cause of it all. But because of this indoctrination and this lifelong propaganda that we're all faced with, that literally doesn't even enter the consciousness for so many people. And so we get to thinking that we're the issue. And obviously there are social contradictions of many kinds that can pop up in these situations. But I would argue that even a lot of that emerges out of the capitalist system and the culture that it creates. But what do you think, Jackie? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And and I think just, just by virtue of the fact that I've lived a while, I've experienced that. I mean, when I met Abdus, th this brother was a truck driver, you know, and, and not making a lot of money. He made probably, Abdus probably made $35,000 a year driving a truck, you know, locally, because um, the, the bigger money is in cross-country, uh, long-distance truck driving, and he just he just didn't want to do that anymore. It's it's hell on your body. So, and then he met me, and he's like, "Well, oh, I got to be around because I can't handle nobody. I got to be make sure that nobody is, you know, she mine, <laughs> you know, all this kind of foolishness." So, <laughs> so that there were these conversations that that people would have with me about how I would handle if. He couldn't pay for my standard of living that I was used to. And it was just so foreign and weird to me because these were never conversations that I ever had with him. The, 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 there were ne it was never like, you know, me saying to him, well, you know, you only make a so, certain amount of money and I am used to this. And I am. And how are you going to do this? And, and, and that was never and he was never insecure about the fact that I made more money than he did. And because, see, we're both Pan-Africanist, anti-imperialist, socialist <laughs> radicals. So we, we ain't about that life. We're just not. But but so many people around us wanted to make that an issue in our relationship. The fact that, you know, other uh, people want to make it. Issue. Other people, right. other people like, you know, Y'all are going to have problems. That brother's not going to like it that you make more money than he does. You, that brother don't like it because you're going to be, you, you know, you're going to be wanting to be making decisions. I'm like, dude, I've been making decisions all my life. Make them. I'm tired. <laughs> please make them. <laughs> please. You know, and, and he was never the kind of person who was intimidated by the fact that I am opinionated. 
and that, you know, I, I'd speak up for myself and, and that kind of thing. You know how we were. So it's like people in their their preconceived notions that they have been indoctrinated by were an issue in our relation to the extent that they projected that stuff onto us. And we had to one by one, and some of those folks were family, you know, and we had to one by one sit these folks down and tell them that's not our gig. You know, first of all, our finances ain't your business. We ain't asking you to pay for nothing. Second, we're good over here. We're not concerned about that, you know, you know, who who washes the dishes and like like I remember one time, because he really did love washing the dishes. He, and, like he and, enjoyed it. I I just I don't. <laughs> and, I never heard that in my life. <laughs> and laundry, this dude, every stitch okay, of clothes. My, my dad is like that. Yeah. yeah, every stitch of clothes in the house would be clean. It just just everything, dog blanket, everything. And and I I remember posting a picture on Facebook about that how he just loved to do laundry, and I was looking for something, and it was in the washing machine. <laughs> And and, you know, they, they call him and he's they're like, you know, man, you can't be doing all that housework. And he's like, oh, wow. He's like, why? This is my house. <laughs> I live here. What do you mean? All right. What you, you know, so we had to we had to deal with those those very real manifestations of that capitalist gender role, misogynistic kind of patriarchal indoctrination that everybody else thinks they're giving as like relationship advice, which I hate. And and that's the reason I hate it, because that's all it is. And and try to show people, look, relationships don't have to be about any of those things. It just be about two grown people just kind of digging each other. That that's it. That it's nothing else. <laughs> and and it's really hard. It was really hard for people to get on that. And and to this day, some people are still, you know, well, Jackie. You, you know, the next person that God sends you, he might be able to take you around the world. I'm like, yo, I've been to Colombia, Cuba, Venezuela. What? What? <laughs> also, travel sucks. Can we be honest about that? Like, I don't dig it, man. It's like, you know what I'm saying? You got to buy the uh, the plane ticket. You got to pack. That's always terrible. You got to get to. And I'm one of those people who gets to the airport like four hours before it's time to board because I'm just like afraid something will happen. I mean, once I'm in my destination, that's cool. But it's just like, ugh, I'm sorry. Like, you know, I don't know. Particularly with my generations, millennials, a lot of, there are millennials who make like travel like a part of their personality and their identity. And it, it's pretty uh, obnoxious. But yeah, I don't really dig it. But no, I definitely understand what, what you're saying, Jackie. I mean, that even, you know, it was even sort of a similar experience with me. It's like when I was, you know, when I was growing up, like both my parents cooked, both my parents cleaned. I, I mean, my mother cooked more often because she was better at it. But I mean, even still, they both, you know, tended to the raising and rearing of, you know, me and my brother. And so it's just, you know, it, it, it's it's uh, social expectations are just really a wild thing, man. And, you know, again, I really do feel it is um, a trickle down effect of the broader dynamics of this capitalist system that really infuses and frankly infects the way that we even think about ourselves and each other as human beings and how we relate to each other. I mean, I just feel like there's so many uh, uh, layers to that that uh, uh, just simply uh, don't get acknowledged because we see it as normal and we see it as, quote unquote, natural. But I think we should always remember that, you know, what we consider normal and natural doesn't evolve out of a vacuum. 
they exist because of very particular material circumstances, right? And this is just a small aspect of things that are just not sort of, frankly, allowed oftentimes to even uh, come across the popular consciousness in this country and under this system because there are too many other implications of too many other things. I don't think oftentimes we realize how so much of how we relate to each other as people in this system is literally designed to continue to perpetuate it. And I think it goes right back to what you were talking about, that rugged individualism. I'm not part of a collective. I'm not part of a group. I'm not part of a whole. It's just me doing my thing. And the world is just uh, the world consists of just a bunch of individuals just sort of maneuvering around each other, never supposed to be in uh, uh, in tandem or together or moving towards the same thing. And all that does is disincline us to the collective effort that it will take to overthrow the class and the system that has vulgarized the way we think and feel about each other. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.